All right, well, today uh, we're on the last beatitude. This is the last one of the, of the series. Um, it's Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Um, so let's uh, read it. I think there's going to be a, a leader people think. Perfect. Um, so I'll read the things marked leader. Um, and if you'd read the things marked uh, people with me, that would be fantastic. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right. As uh, Carrie mentioned, my name is Calvin. I'm often on stage doing the music. You might recognize me from that. I've also been the uh, uh, summer intern working with John and Greg Sawatsky, who's one of the uh, Kingdom Come people we support, working with uh, youth in the community. So that's how I'm connected. I've been here for about a year now. So uh, it's a privilege to be able to bring you the word this morning. Um, as we begin, I want to invite you to think back to a time in your life when you had a summer job. Um, some of you might need to think back farther than others. Uh, it's pretty recent for me. Um, if you've never had a summer job, imagine you've had one. Kind of figure, I'm at Starbucks, I'm going back to school, think, like just get in that headspace. Now, uh, with that job in mind, I want you to think about what your plan was for after that job. We all got it? All right. Summer jobs are weird in that way because there's always a plan for after. Uh, summer jobs, by definition, have an end date. You have something planned for the rest of the year that takes precedent. It's more important to who you are, to what you want to do. Um, but while you wait for that thing, you have a summer job, maybe to pay for the thing coming up. But it's, it's a waiting thing. Uh, last summer, 2021, I worked for a painting company, and it was in between the, my third and fourth year at CBC, I was almost finished up my degree, and if you had asked me what I did, I would have said, I'm a student at CBC. That was what was kind of my identity, but for four months, I was an industrial painter. I woke up at 5.30 a.m., I drove to construction sites, and I painted. My daily reality that summer was drastically different from the greater reality of my life. See, summer jobs are weird because they're middle spaces. Something is true of your life, there's something already planned for September, but that something's not yet your daily reality. It's already not yet, you might see where I'm going with this. There's a lot of middle spaces in life. Bakerview's in an interim period, we were talking about the vision team, that's a weird middle space, isn't it? Things aren't the way they used to be, but they're not yet the way they will be, already not yet. The Christian life exists in middle spaces in a lot of ways. As we've heard through our study of the Beatitudes this summer, things will be made right. That's the message of the Beatitudes. God's kingdom is a reality, but we're waiting for it. Already, not yet. 
Pardon me. So Matthew 5, 11 to 12 is the last of the Beatitudes. And in this Beatitude, Jesus is repeating the promise, you are blessed because things will be made right, but he also invites us to consider the middle space and ponder what to do while we wait. Um, before we jump into the text, I think it would be helpful to kind of jog our collective memories about the context of the Beatitudes. Um, this is a set of sayings that serves as the, the prologue, if you will, to the larger Sermon on the Mount, which continues all the way to chapter 7. Um, Matthew doesn't give us a clear sort of temporal marker of when Jesus' ministry, um, that the Sermon on the Mount takes place, but we can be fairly certain it's in the beginning, because we're only in chapter 5 of over 20. In verses 12 and 17 of the previous chapter, uh, Matthew's describing that John the Baptist's imprisonment is the moment that kicks off Jesus' ministry. And then for a while, Matthew doesn't say exactly how long, Jesus does three things. He proclaims the gospel, he calls his disciples, and then he heals the sick. And as he's doing those, people begin following him and following him till eventually, in 5.1, there's so many people that he needs to climb up a hill so that they can all see and hear him as he teaches, and that's where the Beatitudes begin. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how he begins. Uh, a few words about the Beatitudes as a whole before we keep going. Uh, firstly, the Beatitudes are quintessentially about the kingdom of God. It was so fitting that we sang uh, King of Heaven to begin because that's what it's about. Um, by the way, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same thing. Mark uses kingdom of God. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. I'm going to use kingdom of God because it just comes more naturally to me and that way I don't confuse myself. Um, it's the same thing though. We don't need to be confused. Um, anyway, the Beatitudes are about the kingdom of God. They can't be separated from that notion. Um, we know this because as uh, Pastor Kerry pointed out last week, verses 3 and 10 form an inclusio. It's a literary device that is meant to tell the readers that everything inside the inclusio is related thematically. So, Imagine for a moment that verses 3 and 10 are an envelope. If the envelope said 2 Calvin, then naturally I would assume everything inside the envelope is 2 Calvin. In this case, the Beatitudes, verses 3 and 10, are labeled the kingdom of God, and so everything in between is about the kingdom of God. Um, secondly, we know the Beatitudes aren't a new moral code. Um, they aren't a, you must be this tall to ride the roller coaster sign at the gate to the kingdom of God. Um, and this is the first sermon of the series. Pastor Kerry told us that the Beatitudes are a description of those who belong in the kingdom of God. And by extension of that, thirdly, the Beatitudes are a description of the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a place where wrong things are made right. Many pastors and scholars use the term upside down kingdom to describe this sort of counterintuitive way it works. It's not exactly true. It's more of a right-side-up kingdom, right? We live in the upside-down kingdom. All the backwards and disorienting things in this world will be made right-side-up in the kingdom. And moreover, the Beatitudes reveal that the kingdom is sure. Jesus promises, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. It's now. These are tangible truths, not hopeful pontifications. The kingdom is yours, no question. And yet the Beatitudes reveal that we are waiting for the kingdom to be made manifest in our lives. There's a fancy biblical studies term for this. It's eschatological. It's really fun to say. You can say it with me. Eschatological. eschatological. So much fun. Um, and it's in this tension of eschatological sureness, this middle space, that we find verses 11 and 12. We read, 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are three uh, sort of threads that I want to pull on as we go through this text, and as these verses unravel, I think we'll find what Jesus is saying to us about the middle space here. Um, The first thread is what Jesus says about persecution. Um, One of the first things we should have noticed as we read through this was that the theme of mistreatment and persecution carries on from the previous beatitude. Um, In fact, many commentators include these two verses as part of the eighth beatitude. That's the beatitude um, Pastor Kerry preached on last week. Um, This is noteworthy because thus far in the beatitudes, everything's been like a short saying, like a little pithy one-liner. Um, And then Jesus moves on to the next topic, all about the kingdom of God, but different groups of people. And here he's expanding on the persecuted. It should lead us to a question, what's so significant about persecution in the kingdom that Jesus expands on it? Um, There are two hints to this uh, significance in the unique wording of this beatitude in specific. Um, The first hint is the shift from third person to second person. In the previous Beatitudes, we heard, blessed is this person, blessed is that person. It's very kind of abstract, philosophical. And here Jesus switches the subject of the blessing to you. Jesus is now speaking directly to those who are following him. And if we're to understand that these verses elaborate on the previous Beatitude, which I believe we are, then Jesus is directly associating those with him, those following him, with those who practice righteousness. They're the same group of people here. Um, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That because of me is the second hint to what's significant about persecution is, to what is significant about persecution in the kingdom of God. Those are the words. (laughs) Um, If Jesus is directly associating his followers with those who practice righteousness, then here Jesus is associating himself with righteousness itself. If Jesus was to blend verses 10 and 11 together, they might say something like, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness, which you do because of me. The implications are pretty clear. As we have heard repeatedly through this series, you belong to the kingdom, and in that kingdom everything is made right. Well, if that's true, then you're going to be made right. This is the first thing that Jesus tells us about the middle space. You will be made right. The uh, theological word for this being made right is sanctification. It refers to the gradual process of being made more and more holy. This isn't a process we do on our own. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But inevitably, kingdom people will begin to look more like their king. Um, Last week, Pastor Kerry preached on verse 10. And in that sermon, he discussed the reality of rampant mistreatment in this world. He asked what our response to that mistreatment should be. What if we're mistreated for doing good? That was the big question. And he reminded us that despite the negative risks, doing good characterizes Jesus' followers. That's what we're learning here. The life of kingdom people is a life of growing righteousness, a growing rightness. And this backwards kingdom that we find ourselves in won't like that. That's where the persecution comes in. Mistreatment might come. In fact, Jesus is pretty confident that it will come to those who follow him. The New Testament is full of texts written to groups of Christians who were experiencing mistreatment and persecution. 
This persecution and mistreatment wasn't always at the hands of the government or powerful oppressors. In fact, it usually wasn't. Um, official persecution of early Christians is actually far less common than we sometimes believe. There was a 10-year period around 70 when Nero persecuted Christians. Um, and according to church tradition, this is when both Paul and Peter were martyred. Um, but that was only in the city of Rome. And widespread persecution didn't really start until the third century, like 200 years after Jesus. And then 100 years after that, Constantine outlawed it and made Christianity the official religion. It's, it wasn't like Romans were running around hunting down Christians for a very long time. But what was far more common in the early church was that Christians would be slandered and excluded. Early Christians may not have always been in physical danger, but they put their reputation, their social lives, and even their livelihoods on the line by choosing to follow Jesus. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Peter, 2 Timothy, they're all letters meant to encourage the church through these hardships. Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians for whom the pressures from their peers had led them to consider turning back to the old Judaism. That's what the whole letter is about. It's an argument against returning to the status quo. Don't go back to the backwards kingdom. And I think we can all identify with this sort of pressure. Even in the West, where Christians like us have had a privileged position in society for so long, we don't all face the same amount of pressures. Some Christians, maybe even some in this room, have been in physical danger because of their faith. Others have been disowned by their families or excluded from social or cultural groups that they belong to. And others yet have experienced slander and gossip that made them feel small for what they believed in. And maybe for some of you this only rings true in principle. But regardless of your experience, I think we can all agree that here in the middle space, while we're being made to look more like the kingdom we belong to, we still face the pressure to return to the backwards kingdom, to the status quo. That's the first thread. The second thread I'd like to pull addresses what we're to do in the midst of this tension of the middle space. It's in the command we find in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. This is a significant command. It's significant because up to this point, the formula of the Beatitudes has been blessing because. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is the first time that Jesus issues a command and it breaks up the blessing and the because. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. This is a command to be hopeful. What Jesus is saying about the middle space is pretty clear. While we wait for the kingdom of God, our lives are to be characterized by joyfulness. It's kind of a weird command. How do we just choose to rejoice, you might be thinking? No, of course, Jesus doesn't just leave us with the command. There is still the because. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. I don't know how you react to that, that little bit, but in my experience, Christians are kind of weird about rewards in heaven. Um, we either get really uncomfortable when they're brought up and avoid the topic like the plague. Oh, everything's going to be equal. It's, everything's going to be happy. There's no rewards. Or we get really, really excited about building up our treasures in heaven and it becomes like a get spiritually rich quick scheme. Um, I don't think that either is very helpful for our Christian walk. See, the Bible doesn't tell us what these rewards in heaven are, only that they exist. Of course, some people will try and parse together what they are and what they're for. Um, I think that's a little bit of a fool's errand. I don't think the Bible intends to give us that information. I'm not going to try, but here's what we do know about heavenly rewards. First of all, they're gifts of God. 
They're given in his perfect wisdom, goodness, and justice. And that's not to say that everyone will receive the same thing, but it does mean that whatever God gives us, it will be exactly what's called for. Second, we know that heavenly rewards are a part of things being made right. They're not extras that we receive on top. There's not going to be some reward show in the kingdom of heaven where Jesus walks around giving us our rewards. Um, Think of them instead as a repayment for the wrong in the world. This was my desire for you. Have it. And that means that some people will experience greater rewards. The Bible tells us that those who suffer will have greater rewards in heaven than those who are comfortable in this world. That says it in the Bible. And lastly, the third thing we know about heavenly rewards is that like the kingdom of God, they are sure, but they are future. They exist in that same middle space, the same tension of eschatological sureness. When the Bible describes heaven, it's not describing a future place. Heaven exists right now. The reward in heaven is right now, but we can't see it. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's right now, it's sure, and so we can rejoice in the middle space because it's sure, even if we can't see it. And finally, the third thread that I would like to pull is from the passage is Jesus' inclusion of evidence. Verses 11 and 12 have blessing, command, because and then evidence of that because. This is also unique to this final beatitude. We read, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus points to the old prophets as evidence that what he's saying is true. And this evidence serves two purposes. First, it provides some real world reassurance of what Jesus is saying. Um, When I was working at a summer camp, another summer job, Um, I was trained to run the high ropes course. Have any of you ever been on like a zip line or high ropes course? Show of hands. Only a few of you. More of you should try it. It's really cool. Um, Well, even though they're safe, they can be pretty scary uh, sometimes. And often campers would climb up to the 30 feet of the top deck and all of a sudden feel overwhelmed and they'd freeze up. They wouldn't move just clutch onto their rope, and I would have to kind of coax them over the edge to encourage them to trust their rope, to take that step of faith onto the rest of the course or over the edge of the zip line. And of course, I would tell them all the facts about how safe the course is, how strong the ropes are, like the ropes you're tied to can hold 2,000 pounds. I don't think you weigh that. Uh, The wire at the top's used to lift airplanes. You're a little smaller than an airplane. You're going to be okay. However, the best way to help kids to trust their ropes was just to relax into my own harness and to let myself hang over the edge of the platform. I could tell kids all the truth they wanted to hear. What they needed was something tangible as proof that they weren't going to fall. This is the first function of the statement about prophets. It's likely that all of Jesus' audience was Jewish. They would have all known the stories about Israel's prophets. And they could think back to those stories and go, you're right, The prophets served God, but they were also treated horribly. The second function, maybe the more interesting function, is that evidence of the prophets serves to illustrate the third task of followers of Jesus in the middle space. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was Israel, and God was supposed to rule it as king. He made the laws for it. He judged it. He was the king in the same way other kings would rule over their nation. However... Israel asked for an earthly king. 
And it's at this point that prophets show up. The very first prophet in the Old Testament is like he's the one who anoints the first king of Israel. God raises up the prophets when the kings begin to arrive. And the role of these prophets is to serve as a royal messenger sent from the heavenly king. Some prophets are sent to the earthly kings and queens of Israel. Some are sent to kingdom people. Um, some are even sent to neighboring kingdoms as like, um, I'm forgetting the word, diplomats, let's say. Um, but they all bear a message from the heavenly king. By comparing the disciples to the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus is telling them that they now serve as his royal messengers. Here in the middle space, we are called to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. This is how the Beatitudes end. This is the ending of it. The series could be over right here. We're through to the end of verse 12. This is how they end. Jesus has climbed a hill. He sits down. And he begins to teach the crowd of people who are following him. You are blessed when you experience the wrongness of this backwards world because my kingdom is coming. And it's going to set everything right. And you belong in that kingdom. And then in verses 11 and 12, he gives us these three things that characterize the middle space. You're to be made right, you are to rejoice, and you're to proclaim the good news. And in that way, verses 11 and 12 serve as a transition between the promises of the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As I mentioned at the start of this message, the Beatitudes are just a prologue for the rest of what Jesus wants to say. Do you know what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about? It's about ethics. The ethics of the kingdom of God, the way of life of kingdom people here in the middle space. You are the salt of the earth. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Enter through the narrow gate. Anyone who hears these wise words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. All of those teachings are from the same Sermon on the Mount. And again, these aren't entrance requirements. Jesus doesn't start his sermon by saying, blessed are you for yours is the kingdom. Oh yeah, actually do these things first. But then for sure, yours is the kingdom. We belong to the kingdom first. Faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is enough for our salvation. Jesus has paid our entrance fee, if you will. But when kingdom people are being sanctified, when they're living in joyful anticipation of the rightness of the kingdom, and when they are telling everyone they know about the kingdom that is the source of their hope, they will naturally be formed into people who live by the ethics of the kingdom they belong to. This is a really important thing in early Anabaptist history, the, the Christian tradition that we are a part of. There was a huge emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount, on the ethics of Christian life here in the middle space. That's our, our heritage, is to really lean into this. When we live by kingdom ethics, we join in the work of making things right. We join in the purpose of the kingdom of God. We are shaped by the kingdom, and then we shape the world around us to look like that kingdom. This isn't a passive call, in case you haven't pieced that together. It's very active. It requires effort. It requires prayer. It requires that we rely on each other, our brothers and sisters here in the local church, to build us up, to encourage us through the hardships of this middle space. But it's a good call. It's an exciting call. And the Holy Spirit will empower us to do it. And so, as we end this series on the Beatitudes, I hope that you hear this. 
The kingdom of God is yours. And things will be made right. And here, in the middle space, in the already not yet, the Beatitudes are an invitation for us to join in the work of making things right. So if you've put your faith in Christ, if you're a part of the kingdom people, I have two invitations for you. First of all, I invite you to read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Over this next week, just read it a little bit a day. Maybe read the whole thing when you get home if you're really excited about it. And as you read it, pray, Father, may you continue to transform me into someone who is making things right. And second, let me remind you to rejoice. Though the world around us may seem so wrong, the kingdom of God is sure. It is yours. Things are being made right. And for those of you who have never put your faith in Christ, or maybe who have felt the pressures of this world and let yourself move back into the comfort of the status quo, I implore you, come to the kingdom where things are made right, the kingdom of rightness. You don't need to be stuck in the backwards world. Jesus has paid your entrance fee. And he's waiting for you with open arms, saying the kingdom of God can be yours. Come to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that you give us in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Thank you that you promised to sanctify us, to make us righteous, to make us right. Thank you that you give us reason to rejoice here in the craziness of this middle space. We have reason to be glad. And Father, thank you that you empower us to be your royal messengers. May we share our hope with others. God, as we move into the rest of this week, uh, may you remind us that your kingdom is sure, that it is coming. May you empower us to live well, to live with the ethics of your kingdom here in the middle space. And through all we do, may you be glorified. Amen.